Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian, I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are discussing Phantasm from 1979. Directed and written by Don Coscarelli, starring A. Michael Baldwin, Bill Thornberry, Reggie Bannister, and Angus Scrimm. And in this film, a boy and his older brother investigate a suspicious funeral home and the ominous and intimidating caretaker. Uh, Ashvin, this was the first time you've ever seen this, correct? First time I'd seen it and first time I'd heard about it, which I'm amazed because there there are a few of these, right? It's a franchise? Yeah, there are, what, five films? Right, yeah. yeah. That's crazy. It's not, not I know. I've... I wasn't aware that there was a whole franchise until recently. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not one I've, uh, I'd heard about, but you'd seen this a long time ago? Yeah, I saw this maybe like 15 years ago or so, so I was excited to revisit it. How did you hear about it back then? Oh, just reading up on horror movies on the internet. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, you know what? Back then, a big thing was like the top 10 lists or top 50 lists or whatever that people would make on, boy, like Amazon maybe or Netflix (laughs) itself. I would read a lot of Netflix reviews written by people back when that was a thing. I think even like barnesandnoble.com had some good top 10. (laughs) I'm trying to think where the source was of where I would get all my like lists of good horror movies yeah yeah that's really cool man i feel like if i saw this on a list and saw like the year it came out i would have just been like yeah that's all right i'm good (laughs) (laughs) you're such a stinker about things before the 80s (laughs) i know (laughs) i'm just getting around on the 80s actually but yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so don coscarelli i mentioned he wrote and directed this film he also photographed and edited this um He's directed a few other big-name movies, most notably The Beastmaster from 1982, which did okay at the box office but went on to get tons of airplay on TV on stations like HBO, TBS, and TNT. I've never seen that. Have you? I haven't, no. I'm not big on that, like, sword and sorcery type stuff, but maybe I'll have to check that out. Right. That's kind of like in the vein of, like, Conan the Barbarian or something? Yeah. Right. From what I understand. Um, Don Coscarelli also directed three of the four sequels to this film. He directed Phantasm 2 from 1988, Phantasm 3 Lord of the Dead from 1994, and Phantasm 4 Oblivion from 1998. And then in 2016, there was one called Phantasm Ravager. Uh, Don Coscarelli did not direct that, but he's listed as a producer. And I don't know if you noticed, but the franchise has a lot of consistency in terms of the cast as well. Like, everybody came back to play themselves for the most wow. part in most of the movies. Really? Throughout, like, all five of them? Yeah, I think A. Michael Baldwin is replaced in the second one, and then he comes back for the third one, and he's I think he's in all of them. That's incredible. Um, wow. Same with Reggie Bannister. the Kathy Lester, who plays the seductress known as the lady in lavender reprises her role in the fifth installment mm-hmm. oh, that's really cool Angus scrims in all five of them yeah that is so unique to see a franchise where like not only do you have the director uh carrying through all of them um but also the cast like i i don't know if we've ever seen that in any other franchise have we uh, not many not many i mean screams got a lot of the core members but they yeah. they drop off actually screams really similar he did one, two, three, and four, and then not the fifth one. 
Craven. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, So, yeah, but it's interesting. It really makes me want to check out the rest of these movies, knowing this is just such a little self-contained pocket with all these repeated players. Right, right. This is the only one you've seen in the franchise? Correct, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, man, I'm really curious, too. And and uh, going back to your other point, like it, it seems like this one was very uh, DIY. Um, oh, yeah, like, yeah man. He, he did everything. Like He got the money from his parents and like other doctors and lawyers or something. <laughs> yeah, so, I, which I would imagine were friends of his parents. Yeah. <laughs> and then his mom did the costumes and makeup. Yep. Sounds like a lot like of the cast and crew were friends. Right, right. I always appreciate learning that about a film. Yeah, I th- yeah, th- I, th- I think there are a few, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I thought it kind of had a similar feel where there was a lot of like DIY behind it. Yeah. Yeah, nothing like a scrappy film. I think of Evil Dead when I think of that too. Oh, sure, sure. Um, Which, I, I, it's surprising because like, I, I don't know, like watching this, I, w- I would have guessed that it was like such a scrappy film. Yeah, I mean, cars explode. Yeah. Uh, a mansion explode. disappears. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, fingers get cut. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, speaking of the scrappiness and the things that go on in the film, it had a budget of 300000 but it had a box office number of at least $12 million. I saw some varying and dubious numbers, but Box Office Mojo has the domestic box office listed at $12 million, which is still quite a bit more than uh, multiple times over 300000 I can't do that math quickly <laughs> in my head. <laughs> I'm ashamed yeah. that I can't do it. It's it's a lot more. Um, I think <laughs> it's at least thirty six times more, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought uh, the the number I saw was twenty two million. Um, did you come across that number at all? I did. I came across that on Wikipedia, and I think an article in Vox was or Variety maybe was the source, but I couldn't find mm. that article. Um, oh, okay. And just to have it be nearly double the domestic, but not find that information anywhere else, made me a bit suspicious. It could be true. It could be twenty two million. Interesting. So you're one of those that doesn't just believe everything on Wikipedia. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. For the podcast, sometimes I just have to, if I see it multiple places, then I'll, I'll trust Wikipedia. And if it's the source seems credible, but some, yeah. things I, some things I need to go double check. Wow. Good on you. That's great. But you never know, man. I mean, credibility is subjective when it comes to movies because everything's based on the word of whoever they interviewed and memories are not reliable and people exaggerate like and even in like the documentaries for movies behind the scenes documentaries you'll hear a different answer from an actor and from the director and from the writer like everyone's oh, got yeah. their own little story yeah yeah right right yeah i just always assume like with financials though those would be like kind of more hard facts uh but yeah i i guess there are like a lot of different ways to do the accounting of it and in this one it doesn't even sound like there was like an accountant on the set yeah i mean the budget number is always just uh there's no accountability there it's for us to get the correct number um sometimes it's pretty darn close i would imagine especially on bigger productions from studios that have staff that handles that type of thing the box office number is more reliable yeah but Box Office Mojo is my most trusted source for that. Oh, okay. Nice. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Um, Rotten Tomatoes score, 74% from critics, 67% from users. Um, But this is a beloved... I was actually surprised that wasn't a little higher from users because this has become a cult classic. Mm -hmm. 
It's made yeah. a lot of top 100 horror lists, and the tall man's become a horror icon as well, played by Angus Scrim. Yep. Do you get the impression that when it was released, it was more mixed uh, on the reviews than in, like, over time it's gotten more appreciated? I think it has become more appreciated over time. Some of the contemporary reviews were a little, yeah, they were they were iffy. They were so-so on it, mid-lane. Right. That makes sense. Um. But yeah, I mean, even so, it did, it did really well at the box office. And then, this was dubious too, but it was supposedly only released in California and Texas, which a 12 oh. million number seems very high for just two states. So yeah, that's crazy. I don't wow. I don't know if I believe that. Yeah. But I couldn't <laughs> find reliable info on the box office stuff. Right, right. I mean, it was also released in Australia, so it, that's random that you'd have like two states in the U.S. and then like one random international country yeah i don't get it i don't get it yeah um don coscarelli said the original idea was inspired by something wicked this way comes a book by ray bradbury have you ever read that ashvin i haven't i think the only book i've read of his is uh he did fahrenheit 451 right uh i think that was him yeah have you read it Yes, you should read it, man. If you like uh, scary stories to tell in the dark type stuff, it's like a kid's book, but it's it's creepy. Oh, cool. All right, I'll, I'll check that out. Yeah, you should. Um, and Coscarelli also had a nightmare that he was being chased by floating spheres, which served as inspiration for perhaps the most iconic scene in this film. Got it. Yeah, they yeah, had those spheres are really cool. Hey, uh, that book. Um, having seen the movie, like, like how close of it is it? Like a loose inspiration, or did, did you feel like it took a lot from that book? Phantasm. Yeah, it's a very, very loose. It's it's a totally different story than something this wicked this way comes. It just has oh, okay. a a similar vibe. Okay. Oh, cool. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, man, I would check it out. I think you'd enjoy that book. It's yeah. an easy read. Okay. Cool. Cool. Definitely read that. Um, that's all that I had in terms of notable background info. Do you have anything? Um, one thing that made sense uh, after watching it, it sounds like a lot of the script um, and dialogue was either like not written or written as they went along, or just like kind of really half baked as they shot it. Uh, which I think you kind of get a feel for it throughout the film, but I, I don't know if that jumped out to you at all. Yeah, that's good background info. It, it sounds like the script was, if it existed, it was very loose, and it was, as you said, being kind of written and modified on the fly. Right. And right. I think at some point, Don Coscarelli even said something to the effect of, he he like made wrote the movie in the editing room, essentially. Oh, sure. Um, and <laughs> yeah. this was like a a shoot that went on for at least a year. Like, they were shooting on just weekends for some of it, but they were putting in long days. So it was a big, epic shoot. And yeah, like you said, constantly changing. And I think he ended up with three hours of footage that he had to, that I think he screened to a test audience that didn't go well. So he he cut it down to its its current size. Yeah, that was so surprising. Because I I think uh, it sounded like the original had like a lot of character development in it. And then he like took all that out to, to cut it down after that initial screening, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, and it sounds like some of the um, kind of dream logic stuff was intentional, but mm-hmm. I get the impression that some of it may be caused by having to cut back the movie quite a bit, too. Oh, sure. That kind of gave it a, 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 a more of a dreamlike feel. 
Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. That's that's my thinking. Sure, sure. And then I uh, did, did see that it was originally rated X, I believe, and then um, they had like someone who knew the border on the MPAA or something that helped them get it down to an R. Oh, really? I missed that. Yeah, I think so. Oh, wow. Uh, well, I wonder why it was rated X. Uh, yeah, I know. This one, like out of other ones we've seen, didn't necessarily strike me as an X one. No. That's um, weird. There's really yeah. only like one moment that, huh. Odd. Shit. Maybe I got to stop believing everything on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That one, that one is one that maybe should be double checked. All right, all right. You go to wikipedia.net, right? .net, .biz. Exactly. Um, have you seen any of this guy's other work like uh, Bubba Hotep or John Dies at the End? I have not. No, have you? I think I've seen that Bubba movie. I, I saw it a long time ago, and I kind of want to revisit it because, uh, yeah, after seeing this film, um, it's just interesting that he, he's still like John dies at the end. Is more of like a modern film, right? Like maybe from the last decade or something. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. So he's still around. Still yeah, making that, movies. What forty years later? Yeah, that's that's really impressive. Um, but no, yeah, I was just wondering. I, I feel like those movies are mentioned often. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting to check those out. And uh, those are mentioned in our Ohio connection as well. Oh, cool. All right, yeah. That's all the background I had. All right, then I'll get to it. So our Ohio connection, as always, is from our friend Alex, who owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio. If you're near Cleveland, we highly recommend you go there so that Alex can feel like he's contributed something of worth to this podcast by meeting a listener. (laughs) Um, Alex says, Phantasm is a science fantasy horror film directed, written, photographed, and edited by Don Coscarelli. The film was an instant cult classic spawning a Phantasm franchise and launched Coscarelli's award-winning career. His other notable works include 1982's The Beastmaster, three Phantasm sequels, 2002's Bubba Hotep starring Bruce Campbell, and the 2012 horror comedy John Dies at the End, which stars model actor Rob Mays in the titular role of John. Rob Mays was raised in Pepper Pike, Ohio. Oh, cool. That's uh, pretty close to, uh, like, Cleveland and stuff. Is it? Okay, I have no idea where that is, but it sounds familiar. Yeah, I think close to Alex's hometown. What a cute little name. It sounds so whimsical. <laughs> I know, Pepper Pike. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Pike the uh, houses there are made of food. <laughs> yeah, it's a little candy land. Yeah. Uh, okay, men, you ready to uh, start discussing the plot? Oh, and I forgot to mention at the top of the episode, we're going to start spoiling stuff now. So if you haven't seen this movie, it's time to duck out and go do it before you keep listening. But um, before we do that, Ashvin, I uh, just heard the doorbell ring. Do you mind if I go check on that? No, go for it. All right, I'll be right back. All right. Hey, man, I'm back. Hey, everything okay? Yeah, we just received a package, and I'm not sure who it's from, but it's just got this metal orb in it. Hmm, interesting. I can't figure out what it is or who sent it. I'm sure there's some sort of explanation for what it is. I'm sure. I think if you just like leave it out in the open, uh, it'll resolve itself somehow. Yeah, right. I'm sure the explanation <laughs> will uh, pop into my head at some point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> okay. 
<clears throat> this film opens with a couple having sex outside in the grass. <laughs> and the woman takes out a knife and stabs the guy. And we see her face turn into that of an old man. Uh, what do you think of this intro, Ashwin? It's pretty quick and to the point. <laughs> I mean, I, I love it. Like, the fact that you're opening with uh, a couple having sex and, like, she's wearing shoes, like, high heels uh, during this. So that, I thought that was an interesting thing to do. Um, <laughs> when, when you say turns into a man, though, like, that part wasn't clear to me. It was more like you see an, you see her face and then you see an image of a man. Right. They don't, like, dissolve the face into a man. It's kind of like it's done through a cut. So Yeah. <laughs> It's basically like, okay, now you move and let's put the Angus scrim there and we'll <laughs> just cut. Yeah, yeah. It, it, like, I mean, it wasn't immediately clear to me that, that, like, that was supposed to be him or if, like, maybe he was just watching from somewhere and they just went to his face for a second. But sure. it was clear to you that that, that, was, that was him? Uh, it was, but yeah, it is a little bit confusing. Okay, okay. Uh, but and yeah, if you're yeah. having sex outside, it's perfectly feasible that an old man might be watching. <laughs> exactly. Especially like on a, on a cemetery, like outside of a morgue. Right, exactly. Sense. Yeah. Um, Nothing else but, going on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, what, what did you think of this guy, or this opening? Um, I liked it. I thought it was just fine. I, no comment, really. And you, when she stabs him, you don't really see any blood or the yeah. knife go in or anything. So it's just kind of like... More intriguing than anything. Yeah. At this point, I thought, I started to think, because, you know, you think of the word phantasm, uh, you immediately jump to, like, orgasm, right? <laughs> Is that... I, I guess so. Yeah. So I, I assumed, like, by starting like this, I was like, oh, shit, am I, like, uh, instinct was right. This movie's all about, like, you think you're having sex, and then you're having an orgasm, and then it, the person kills you. So I, I thought that was going to be the premise of the film moving forward. <laughs> Just people dying upon orgasm? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got really excited. <laughs> this is the movie I was wanting to see. <laughs> um, I think there is like a, there was some sort of naming issue. I'm pretty sure there's like an Australian softcore porn with a similar name or something. Yeah. I think it was I mean, released like, as something else in Australia. That's how we know it was released in Australia. Right, right. I think there's like a phantasma or something with like an F. That's okay, like an yeah. Australian porn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, our next scene is the funeral of this guy who we just saw get murdered in the intro. And his two close friends, Jody and Reggie, are in attendance. And they're under the impression that the deceased, whose name was Tommy, killed himself. Jody think, is... Oh, oh, go ahead. How do, you, how do you think they got that narrative through? Like, um, how do you see a guy with like uh, a knife wound and think uh, suicide? Right? That That is um, one of many open questions that might pop into your head throughout this film. <laughs> all right, all right. I was, that was like, something. I had that thought, and then, like, I just kept moving on without going back to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to describe how you have to go through this movie. Didn't the musician Elliot Smith kill himself by stabbing himself in the stomach? Yeah, you're right. You're right. One, I think he did. One wonders if maybe he was just... Having sex with that. Fantas... Phantasmed. <laughs> too, too strong of a phantasm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I might be too soon to laugh about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jody is walking through a mausoleum hallway in this funeral home and comes across the tomb of his parents, and we later learn that his parents have died, leaving him to be the guardian of his much younger 13-year-old brother. I imagine Jody's somewhere between, like, 18 and 22. Hmm. Okay. Um, 
Ash, I thought this hallway made for such a striking visual. What did you think about that? Yeah, like the marble hallway with like all the drawers. I, I thought that was a really cool scene uh, in great setting. Right, and the really setting, like there's bright red curtains against that black and white. And there's really symmetrical framing in, in the movie in general, but especially in some of the hallway shots. It's, it sure. was cool. Yeah, yeah, really cool. Great visuals. And while Jody's in the hallway, he hears this bestial growl and we also cross cut to his little brother Mike who's biking through the graveyard and also hearing a similar sound and they both see like the tail of a black robe shuffle behind a corner another disturbing thing that Mike witnesses while he's out there in the graveyard is the funeral director lifting the presumably very heavy casket completely by himself and putting it in the hearse and the funeral director is of course the same man we saw that woman turn into in the intro and this is the film's villain who is known as the tall man we transition back to jody the older brother for a seemingly innocuous scene where he's jamming on the guitar with his buddy reggie who we met at the funeral and as the scene is concluding we linger on a shot of reggie tuning the guitar with a tuning fork that is vibrating and emanating a tone and that moment will prove to be significant later on I kind of liked this song that they were jamming to on the guitar. What did you think? I liked it a lot too, man. That was a great jam, and you could tell they were actually playing too, which is cool. Yeah, I think they're both musicians. Yeah, yeah, right, right. I was down. Uh, yeah, I, I like that. That was, that was a great jam, and uh, I think I think you see like the guitars in the background later too. Hey, uh, I I think you already talked about the part where like uh, the the kid ghost like sees it his grandma or someone. Or, you like, know, man. I had such a long plot description, or I felt like it was so long that I cut out that part. But yeah, let's talk about that. He goes to Mike, the 13-year-old boy, goes to visit a psychic. Oh. And he tells her, um, you know, it's Jody again. I found out that he's leaving. And this is true. Um, Jody's planning on leaving and having Mike stay with an aunt. Jody's old enough to kind of be out on his own and, and not having to take care of his younger brother. Sure. I mean, not that he shouldn't be obligated to do so, but <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, he's he's trying to move on or something. Yeah, yeah, trying to live his life. Mm -hmm. um, the psychic oh, so makes a box appear on the table and has Jody stick his hand in it, and she tries to tell him like there's nothing but fear, or fear is the killer, or something like that. Um, yeah, and I didn't like totally know what to make of this scene, and then. Even more confusing, the the psychic laughs after Mike leaves. Right. Like kind of ominously. <laughs> yep. So what were your thoughts on this scene? Um, so, so yeah, I, I thought for some reason that was his grandmother. I, I didn't catch that it was like an un, unrelated psychic. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a really weird scene. Uh, I, I thought it was kind of comedic, actually, because like the, the grandmother like doesn't say anything, right? It's just like the uh, her daughter or someone or her granddaughter talking to Mike. Uh, so I, I thought that was kind of funny that, um, she, she laughs like, I mean, like they're like playing a prank or joke on him or something. Um, <laughs> it, but, but the part where I got really confused was like when he's, he's like, I saw something weird today and we see like him seeing what you mentioned earlier, like the, the, the guy the, on the funeral grounds lifting the coffin. And I couldn't tell like what was weird about that. Um, until like I, I read about it later that like, oh yeah, you're not supposed to be able to pick up a coffin by yourself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> Imagine, like, A, picking up a dead human body just 
very easily by yourself and putting it into the back of a vehicle and then yeah. B, picking up a large wooden piece of furniture yeah. and add both of those together. And yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like when, when you saw that, that jumped out to you too, that, that, oh, that's what we're supposed to be like really wowed about. Yeah. Well, and as Jody says later on, like, <clears throat> he's like, I was, I was a pallbearer. That thing had to be at least 500 pounds. And I've been in that position and it is, it is heavy. Yeah, he says that like I don't know twenty twenty five minutes later. But in this flashback, where Jody's just like, or, or, or uh, the the kid's Michael, right, Mike? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, Mike is just like I saw something weird, and then we see him watching this dude put a coffin in the back of the car. It didn't jump out to me that the focus was on uh, the coffin being the weird part. Maybe you're so, just really fucking strong. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But you know, I've been lifting coffins all day, so it seems. <laughs> Seems pretty doable, but uh, yeah. I was, so I was, I was a little confused at, at this part. I also uh, I've seen like Jody, like like he was at the funeral home in the suits, and then we see him like you know outside uh, with uh, Mike uh, by the car, and then jamming on the guitar. I thought these were three different dudes each time. I didn't put it. I didn't put it together that I was like Jody the whole time. Did you? This is a recurring theme throughout the podcast of you just like not being able to visually identify human faces. They, they look so different in each of these scenes. I, I was trying to figure out like who all these people were. And I guess the whole time it was just Jody, which is crazy. Just Jody. Yeah. But um, you, you didn't struggle with that? Have you seen? No, I haven't. I didn't. Okay. Um, I'm a normal human being. Have you seen uh, Dune, the new Dune? No, the no. Dune? I, I, need to, I need to see that. Have you? Yeah, well, I think Jody putting his hand, or Mike putting his hand inside this mystery box was actually kind of a reference to Dune. Oh, yeah, I read that somewhere. I, I think that that's where the inspiration came from. Yeah, and later Jody goes to a bar that's called, like, the Sandy Dunes or something like that. Oh, cool. Interesting. Good throwback. Um, but anyway, there is also a moment where this granddaughter from the psychic goes to the funeral home, um, opens a door. She's walking through that hallway opens a door at the end of the hallway and screams, and we never find out what happened to her. Right. That was also so random. It was, yeah. Um, so, you know, curiosity is peaked. We know some sort of supernatural stuff exists in this world because we just saw a box appear on the table out of nowhere. Yeah. And later on, Jody is at a bar, this, this Sandy Dunes bar, whatever it's called. He picks up a girl at the bar and takes her back to the cemetery to hook up, but of course, this is the lady in lavender, as she's known in the credits, the same woman that stabbed Tommy in the intro. Mike, who follows Jody everywhere now since their parents passed away, is lurking in the bushes, spying on Jody, and he gets chased by some hard to identify growling beast. He runs from the bushes screaming, totally cock blocking Jody, who chases after Mike <laughs> to make sure all is okay. Jody sends Mike back home, clearly not believing his story about a monster in the bushes. And Jody returns to find that the girl has now left. I love how they both said wow when the breasts came out. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Does that strike you as like comedic? Yeah. This is a funny movie. Yeah, it is. It is. And their rapport and their kind of lang the language they use is pretty funny. Like they call everybody a mother or like, man, that was some mother or that mother was heavy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So it's kind of cute. Back home, Mike experiences another attack from an unseen entity. 
um, while he's underneath a car that he's working on, but Jody yet again doesn't believe him. And all of this has got Mike convinced that there's something strange going on with this funeral home. So he breaks in one night by shattering a window in the basement. While he's lurking about inside, there's a pretty suspenseful scene where he's hiding in a coffin as he's almost found out by one of the employees. And we also get the most memorable scene from the film, in my opinion. He's walking down that marble hallway, and a silver orb that floats through the air is hurling itself towards him. A henchman-type dude grabs him in a headlock, but Mike bites his arm and escapes the hole just in time for the orb to miss Mike and instead hit the henchman in the head. Shortly before it makes contact, a drill pops out of the orb like a Swiss Army knife and drills into this dude's head as blood squirts out the other side of the orb, killing this dude. Did you enjoy this scene, Ashvin? I really did, man. This was like the last thing I expected to see happen, and it, it looked—I thought it looked great—and the the blood and the gore was like a lot of fun too. So I, I I loved it. What did you think? I thought it looked great too, and it didn't look like something that was such a scrappy production. Like I expected yeah. to see a recognizable name in the effects um, department, right? But yeah, they did um, a great job. Yeah, I, one thing I really love about it too is that you can see the guys reflect, which is just you know, natural, because it's a real metal orb right in front of him, but you can see his reflection and and his face in agony reflected in the orb as it drills into his head. Oh, yeah. And just like this dude's face with a drill in it and the reflection in this kind of like a beautiful metal orb on that hallway that's just really cool looking. It it was a a great visual, one that kind of sticks with you, Yeah, which I imagine as a kid would be terrifying. I'm sure. Yeah, you'd be scared of metal balls the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, and this orb, oh, I wrote this down somewhere and now I lost it. It's just designed by some like random metal worker um, named Willard Green. Right. And, and like, this, wasn't it like thrown from behind the camera or something and then like the it was reversed? Yeah. Which yep. is how they did it. Yeah. yeah so Willard Green, the guy who designed the, designed the Silver Sphere, that's his only credit on IMDb. And the special effects here were done by a guy named Paul Pepperman, uh, and that's his single special effects credit on IMDb. Wow, that's cool. One of those guys, I think, died before the film came out, right? Yeah, Willard Green passed away before the film came out, so he wasn't able to uh, see the sphere that he designed and built in action. Man, that's a shame. That that scene is so cool. It feels like something from outside of this movie. Yeah, yep, very cool. Um, so let's see, where are we? So Mike has, has, uh, thwarted this henchman, but now here comes the tall man from around the corner. Mike flees into another room with the tall man in hot pursuit. He slams the door behind him and jams the tall man's fingers in the door. He pulls out a hunting knife and cuts the tall man's fingers off, but instead of blood, yellow ooze squirts everywhere. And as the fingers squirm on the ground of their own volition, Mike picks one up and puts it in his pocket as a souvenir. Um, so he's thwarted the henchman and the tall man, but now he's got these little cloaked figures in hot pursuit growling at him, and he finally escapes through the window he broke into and runs home. The next morning, he shows Jody the squirming finger in the box, and Jody finally says, okay, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, too. That was really comedic. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely some comedy here. 
Yeah, I actually thought that scene of the tall guy chasing uh, Mike uh, was was pretty compelling. Like they first like walk towards each other really slowly, and then they break into a run. That, that was just like I thought a great build up and uh, made me like yeah, it was, I, th- I thought it was like pretty uh, scary. And I think just like this really tall dude chasing this young kid, pretty yeah, I think so too. And he's just like such an authentic kid too. When he first sees the tall man, he kind of <laughs> tries to play it like. Oh, I'm just a kid, like in a location that I shouldn't be because it's close. And right. he goes, um, <laughs> like he's trying to like come yeah. up with some excuse for him, and he just goes, "Oh shit!" <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, his reaction there was awesome. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. Oh, Jody and Mike are strangely well armed. They've got guns all over the house. They mention calling the sheriff, but end up totally forgetting that intention and taking matters into their own hands. Jody heads to the funeral home armed with a handgun. He heads in through the same window that Mike used, and there's a really cool shot here of a cloaked figure emerging from behind a crate uh, right behind Jody. Mm -hmm. And what did you think of these little ghouls? You know, uh, they I thought they were like a huge ripoff from the Star Wars franchise, which apparently uh, this guy hadn't seen Star Wars yet or hadn't come out. So I, I just thought it was like a highly, co- like really coincidental that they would, they would look so similar to what are, what are they called in Star Wars? Oh God, I don't remember. Are they Ewoks? Uh, that's what I thought, Ewoks. But, but then uh, no, I, th- I think uh, something with it is it Jawas? Is that one? Oh yeah, you might be you might be right. Boy, I um, I'm not a Star Wars person. I I'm not really that. I think they're good, <laughs> but I'm not wild about the movies. So yeah, yeah. That, here I same. am looking stupid. Yeah, no, I, I was I couldn't remember the name. Then in the shower this morning, I was like, "Oh, Ewoks, that's it." But then I looked it up, and it, it's it wasn't Ewoks; it was this other uh, thing. So yeah, Star Wars people are gonna hate us on this one. Yeah, but <laughs> you, you didn't you didn't feel like it was like a direct rip off of that? Um, it didn't occur to me until reading up on it afterwards. But I I've you know I've seen I've haven't seen all the Star Wars movies. I'm not a huge fan. I've fallen asleep during one or two of them. I'm just not that into it. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, what, what did you think? Were they, were they scary? I didn't think they were too scary or anything. What, what did you think? I didn't think they were too scary. I don't think they were so hokey as to take away from the film, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that they didn't like. Uh, they were more like kind of in the background or chasing them. It was never like kind of like focusing in on them to try to make them scary. I guess. Right. When you've got somebody as intimidating as the tall man, you, you, the ghouls are just kind of bonus, you know. Right. He's he's right. the main the main baddie. Yeah, yeah. I like that they took that route. Um, Jody ends up fleeing the funeral home on foot, but soon realizes that there's a vehicle pursuing him that seemingly has no driver. Mike uh, follows Jody everywhere, of course, so he's followed in the car and has Jody hop into the passenger seat with the other car in pursuit. And Jody does the old uh, shoot a shotgun out of the sunroof trick and shoots the car's engine, causing it to crash into a tree, where they find out that the driver is a little cloaked figure that turns out to be Jody's friend Tommy. Uh, the victim of the post-coital murder in the beginning of the film, and he's been shrunken down to dwarf size somehow. Mm-hmm. Jody ends up locking Mike in his bedroom for his own safety as he heads back to the funeral home, but Mike breaks out using a single bullet, a hammer, and a nail to explode a hole in the bedroom door. <laughs> That's clever. <laughs> I feel like as a kid who grew up in the 80s and 90s, there's just something I can appreciate about like MacGyver-like techniques. <laughs> used in movies especially by kids it just like hits a sweet spot for me sure sure yeah it definitely makes it a lot a lot of fun yeah um but unfortunately the tall man is waiting for mike at his front door he throws mike into the back of his hearse 
Mike manages to, I think he has a gun in the hearse somehow and shoots out the tire, causing the hearse to crash and explode with the tall man in it. And eventually, Mike, Jody, and Reggie reunite at the funeral home, and they find a room with a bunch of barrels in it that they presume hold the cloaked dwarves. They also find what seems to be some sort of gateway or portal between these two metal prongs erected in the room, and Mike briefly gets sucked through the portal into another dimension or something and sees a red sky and a desert landscape with dwarves all lined up in a line, And from this vision, he reasons out that the dwarves are slaves and they've got to crush them down in size because of the gravity and heat on their planet. And so apparently the tall man is converting the bodies in his funeral home to dwarf slaves and sending them to another planet. Did you grasp all that upon the initial viewing or did you have to read up to piece that together? Uh, no, no, that made sense. I, th- I thought that was like such a cool concept that basically you're just uh, yeah sending dead bodies to another dimension. It's crazy that Mike picked all that up, like being in that dimension for like two seconds. Like yeah, yeah, he's together. a precocious kid, so it makes it a little bit more believable. Sure, <laughs> but... yeah. We've seen him do some amazing things. <laughs> yeah, he's great with cars. Yeah, he is. <laughs> uh, and he can drive very well at 13. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Pretty um, resourceful. And he he comes back and explains this to Reggie and Jody, and then the power goes off, and the screen turns to absolute black. Uh, I love when a screen goes completely black in a horror movie. Oh yeah, I don't and like a dark the... where, thing where you can like kind of see but not really, but I like it when there's absolute black. Sure, and you're just hearing like their voices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, fun. There's a dwarf that comes into play. The screen goes black again. And we hear some shuffling, and the dudes are trying to find each other. But when the power finally comes back on, we discover that Mike is gone, Jody's outside the funeral home, and Reggie is still in this white room full of barrels and the, and the portal. And Reggie um, puts his hands on the metal prongs, which drops the tone from the score, which I kind of didn't even realize was present in the score. Um, oh, like the hum? Like the, yeah. that's going on? Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, and this scene was foreshadowed with Reggie's tuning fork in the jam session earlier, and we, and we see a flashback to that tuning fork now. Right. Okay. So apparently when Reggie stops the tone, that causes the gateway to start pulling things into it, like he somehow disturbs the balance or something. Um, and when he does that, it stops the lady in Lavender dead in her tracks, who's creeping on Jody with a knife outside. And the whole portal portal room becomes like a vacuum, and Reggie gets out just in time as all the barrels are being sucked into the portal. Even outside the funeral home, there's this crazy wind as things are getting sucked around. Uh, Reggie runs out of the funeral home and sees the lady in lavender lying on the ground and tries to save her, not knowing anything about her, and unfortunately gets stabbed by her. Mike and Jody flee as the funeral home turns colors and disappears, accompanied by like a lightsaber sound effect. (laughs) <laughs> I suppose another Star Wars thing. Yeah. Um, Mike and Jody get home, but of course the tall man ambushes Mike again. And per a plan that him and Jody have hatched, Mike leads the tall man to an old abandoned mine shaft where Jody has set a trap. Uh, and there's a really cool chase scene, I think, with the tall man striding behind Mike in slow motion while Mike's like running. He falls into a mud pit with random hands that emerge from the ground trying to grab him. It makes no sense, but I thought it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> it was cool. Yeah, and the tall man looks really cool, and he's, like, yelling at him. Isn't this where he's, like, calling him, like, boy and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, kind of taunting him. 
Um, Mike ultimately leads the tall man to the mine shaft where he falls into a 1,000 foot hole per Mike and Jody's plan. And somehow Jody gets giant boulders to roll down the hill and cover the shaft. So it seems all is well, and Jody and Mike will live to fight another day, but the film confusingly closes with Reggie and Mike in Mike's house, and Mike says, I know the rocks aren't going to hold him, but Reggie explains that this was all just a dream and that Jody died in a car wreck. And Reggie says, you had a bad dream. I know you're scared, but you're not alone. I'll take care of you. I know I can't take Jody's place, but I'm going to try. And Mike goes to his room to pack for a road trip that Reggie says the two of them sure could use. And he sees the tall man in his mirror and then hands break through the mirror and drag Mike into the closet. And that's the end of the movie. Yep. <laughs> what did you make of that ending? Dude, I was, I was so confused. But I mean, like, I think to your earlier point, there's so much stuff you just have to, like, kind of stop uh, relying on, like, logic to be uh, holding out throughout this film that, like, by the end... Uh, you're just kind of like taking whatever's coming. So it was like, yeah, it was, it was a shock and surprise. And like, I was, I was into it that like, oh, cool. Like, uh, this was all some kind of like fantasy potentially, or like some way of like him coping with losing his family. Um, but then yeah, that, that last attack didn't make a lot of sense. So yeah, I was, I, I was confused, but like, okay with it. How about you? Yeah, same, same. I, I found myself being surprised I was so okay with it because normally I'm such a stickler about structure and coherency. And with this movie, I just didn't seem to mind it as much. And I think it's because from the very get-go, it's kind of like, wait, what? Like, what's going on? <laughs> and there's still yeah. a plot. It's not just nothingness. And it at least gives you the illusion that things are progressing Mm -hmm. Um, it kind of pulls the rug out from under you at the end, but yeah, I, I was into it for whatever reason. Yeah. It's almost like the rug was never under you on this movie. It's it's like sure. the whole thing like feels a little disorienting, uh, throughout, but like you're kind of just there for the ride. Right. Which uh, you were on a slippery fun. marble floor, not a rug. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Coscarelli says he was influenced by Suspiria. So some of the incoherent logic, dream nightmare logic is, is clearly intentional, and, and I can see that. Yeah, right. That makes um, sense. But I, I think your earlier point, too, about like a lot of the editing maybe having an impact here. Sure. Uh, yeah, you kind of get that feeling, which it, it works out pretty well if it, it is supposed to be like that. Yeah. Yeah, and some analysis of the film, kind of like what you said, interprets it as a boy coping with death in his family and his own fear of death with the tall man serving as a representation of death itself and the whole thing is in the boy's imagination. Yeah. Um, which a, is an interesting way to to receive the film. It is, it is. And, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I think a lot of kids uh, or like young adults would probably like you know, have their mind kind of gravitate towards that type of uh, fantasy idea or like yeah, attributing family loss to like this one bad guy who works at the cemetery or something. Um, but it's so weird because th throughout the film, I thought this was about like two brothers building a bond together in the aftermath of like their parents' death and this bringing them together. And then at the end, you find out that, oh, there's only like one of them left, I guess, which it's crazy. Right. And it's weird, too, because you see Reggie die, but not Jody die. Oh, yeah. Right. And then it turns out that actually Jody died and Reggie's still alive, which you could interpret as Mike's fantasy or dream that it was Reggie instead of Jody, you know? Mm, yeah. Um, like, it seems like, like him that. and Reggie have a good relationship, not that he would wish Reggie dead, but, you know, your mind yeah. does strange things in dreams. 
Sure, sure. So you think like all of that might have happened, but he just like kind of switched the characters? Possibly. I yeah. honestly don't know that I even have any idea of what was real or what was a dream. <laughs> and strangely with this movie, I don't care. I don't feel the need to pin it down. I don't know why. Yeah. I'm normally not like that. Yeah. I, you know, for for me, I, I think the reason why I don't care is because, like, I don't expect there to, to be, like, a uh, any kind of rationale or, like, any hints earlier on or something you could tie it back to. Uh, so much of this movie just felt, like, so spontaneous right. that, like, uh, it's almost like, is it worth, like, digging into more or trying to find answers when, like, I'm pretty sure there aren't, there aren't any there. Sure. Um, one interesting thing is that there are sequels. There's an entire franchise, so... Yeah. There are, I'm sure, people listening that know, if they don't know exactly what happened, they know how much was a dream, how much was reality, and they, they know more than we did because I think the future films have to at least give us some clues about what happened. Yeah, I tried sure. to peek into it a little bit but didn't want to get too much spoiled for me. Right, um, right. I think that a little there's a little bit of a blending of some of it's true, some of it is imagination. Hmm. I mean, uh, I think you were saying earlier that the actors are all there in the sequels. That would mean like the brothers still around at least, right? Yeah, I was. I did see that Bill Thornberry, who plays Jody, is in all the, all five of the films. Yeah, except for Phantasm Two, maybe. But I don't know if that was just flashbacks or not. Sure. Like I, I'm not sure if Jody is a recurring character or not. Got it. So okay. if you've seen the whole franchise, you're going to be a little frustrated with this because we, <laughs> we don't know anything about it, and we're, and I don't, I don't think either one of us really feels like spoiling it because I kind of want to watch them at some point now. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Same. Um, but, but I, I think you point out something really cool that like this movie like defied all logic, like had uh, no like clear explanation. But um, I think it's it's impressive to do that while not like upsetting people who are watching the movie. Right. Right, for sure. It somehow sets that tone right away. Yep, yep. You got attractive young women morphing into old men, maybe. So, <laughs> <laughs> Or an old man watching. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> From a distance, yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite things about it is the score, which we haven't mentioned yet. Score was so good, man. So good. It was done by two guys named Fred Myro and Malcolm Seagrave. And Myro worked on the scores for the second and third films as well. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting score because it changes styles a few times. There yeah, are certain like, times where it's just kind of a synthy, low-budget 80s feel, and then there are times where it feels kind of like slow jam, sludge rock type stuff. Yeah. It, yeah. I know I've mentioned this album multiple times on the podcast before, but it reminds me a little bit of the Drums Not Dead album from The Liars oh, on occasion. Sure. That was a good one. Yeah, and I, I think that, that score kind of captures uh, the vibe of the film because on one hand, like, I mean, I, I know, like, people uh, say it's sci-fi and, like, that tag is on this, but uh, a lot of it uh, is, is, it's not like, not like all sci-fi. Like, a lot of it is like a haunted house movie in a way or like, uh, you know, being chased by, like, some, like, uh, little critters or something. So I, I feel like the score kind of captures, like, both angles of that with the synth plus, like, the more uh, um, analog instruments, like guitars and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's good point, because there is a really straightforward narrative buried in here, but it's got so many 
side steps that it takes and the ending is totally up in the air. So Mm -hmm. on one sense, it's a straightforward movie, but at the same time, it's all over the place. And yeah, um, it just has this really weird, unique tone. It somehow works. Yeah. It, it's super unique. I can't think of like so many movies that uh, like hit, hit like such a uh, unique tone like this one. Yeah. Uh, also, really cool. for the low budget vibe and the scrappiness of Don Ciccarelli doing like every major job on the film, not to insult mm-hmm. other other roles in, in filmmaking, but the framing was really precise to me. I thought it was a very well shot movie for a low budget horror movie from 1979. Yeah, I agree, man. The, the, I think you're right. The framing is. I, I thought the lighting was also really good. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's a pretty bright movie. You have a lot of uh, the color whites in it, like between the the the, the marble or, or yeah, the marble uh, funeral, the white room that they go into, the milkman uh, was wearing white. So I think it gave it like a lot of brightness too. And then yeah, to your point, the framing also was just like really good. Where every shot was like so well done. Yeah, agreed. Phantasm fans would be upset if we let. It stand that Reggie is a milkman. He's an ice cream man. Oh shit! <laughs> it's kind of like a, a milkman, just colder. Yeah, just a little colder. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, man. man. I, there was like a lot of white and and blue. It's just a very unique. He's just got like a mental image in your mind whenever you just hear the name of this movie. It's really cool, right? Yeah, it is really cool. I, I saw the remastered one, and I think you saw the original one. Um, I, so I wasn't sure how much of like the because I, I was really impressed with like the lighting and, and the and the picture, and uh, it just, it didn't like seem like an old film at all. But like if you watch the original, did, did, does it feel more like older or dated? I thought it still looked pretty good. I'm not sure if I watched the remastered or or not. Um, I don't know why okay. I'm so bad at ever knowing what version it is I'm watching. But I thought the version I saw looked pretty good. Yeah, pretty clean. Yeah, it looked pretty clean to me. Right. Yeah, there's something timeless about this movie. And I, I think it is like the, the cinematography, the the shots and in, in, in the music that fits it so well. Yeah. I also think one of the reasons that we tolerated some of the dream logic and incoherentness is because at least I really cared about and enjoyed the characters. Hmm. It's kind of a unique setup, just two brothers alone after their parents have passed away. Yeah. And one of them afraid that the other is going to leave and them having this big age difference. Yeah. It's not an everyday setup for a horror movie. And I love a precocious kid character. He likes to work on cars, as we said. Um, but he's not the typical Stephen King type precocious kid on the go. He's a little bit more vulnerable than that. <laughs> there's a desperation to him like the way yeah. he, he like runs after the dude when he's in his car <laughs> yeah and he yeah. follows Jody everywhere it's kind of a charming sad situation but it's also funny they have a good rapport and Reggie's kind of comedic relief but he's also a sincere and sweet character interesting yeah, did you man. not care for the characters as much as I did well, uh, that, that's a really good point because I, I feel like they didn't give us enough in terms of like the dialogue in this film I thought was like terrible. And when I saw that like a lot of it was improvised, it made a lot of sense because each scene, I, I imagine like the script of this, like like the, the, the words that were said probably take up like two pages. Like it's not a very like dialogue driven film. 
And so to me, I felt like that didn't give us a chance to get to know much about the characters. But you're right, like in the absence of dialogue, there are like certain uh, things that are like ticks that we pick up on, which, yeah, it's, it's interesting with, with such little dialogue, you can still like pick up on the, the comedic angle of Reggie or the desperation and vulnerability of the kid. But I, I felt like they, they really cut out a lot of like uh, the dialogue that I would have liked to see between the characters. Yeah, it sounds like a good chunk of what was cut was further character development. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting that you felt like you still kind of got that, though, even without that dialogue. I do, yeah. And I think the characters, for me, really ground the movie and give it a foundation so that when things start to become confusing, I don't just give up and throw my hands in the air. I'm still with the movies cause, with the movie because I'm into the characters. Mm, I see. I actually, um, on dialogue... I had a note that said the dialogue could be better, but it's not the worst. I don't know, though. Maybe they're just giving them their own way of talking to make it feel unique. Yeah. So I scratched my criticism. Interesting. I, 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 mean, I don't know like, that the dialogue's really bad. I think it's just actually kind of realistic. Well, it's it's really scrappy. And, like, every piece of dialogue is exactly to the point. Like, the opening line, like, hey, I guess, uh, oh, sad he, got, he killed himself. Uh, yeah, or I'll see you inside. Or right. <laughs> uh, it's was, it was just like every every co- there, there wasn't ever like a, a great conversation. It was, it was just like two lines being said just to like kind of further the point. Uh, you're not going to believe what I saw today, and then like a flashback or something. Right. Um, right. So I, I I even struggled to like call it dialogue. Like it just it wasn't like really people conversing that well. That's fair. What did you think of the performances in general? Oh yeah, that was the other thing. <laughs> I thought the acting was kind of terrible. Uh, yeah, yeah. Th- throughout most of the film, I thought the acting was was kind of bad, and uh, I, I think that's f- partly driven because of the the dialogue and the throwaway uh, script that they had. But um, I wasn't sold, and I, I don't think any of these people were generally like established actors or anything. And I, I felt like it kind of showed. What, what did you think? I actually, you're right. They were all people who were just starting out or weren't necessarily even looking to make a career in acting. But I thought the performances were actually pretty solid. Really? I don't think yeah. they were Im- amazing or impressive necessarily, but they didn't take anything away from the movie for me. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I thought the, the uh, Angus, um, the guy who plays the uh, the tall man, so that's his name, right? Yeah, Angus, Angus. Scrim. Yeah, I, I thought he was cool, and he had great presence, but um, how... I, I guess uh, when you look at the other actors, what what like scenes like caught you in, in terms of their acting? Like, do, do you feel like they embodied like the fear of the situation they were in, or I, I feel like a lot of them were just like constantly on the go, versus like kind of taking things in or like expressing uh, any like kind of complex emotions. That's true. That's fair. But it's kind of more an action adventure movie, so you don't they don't really get that opportunity with. I know I'm going to say with the script, but just with what <laughs> what made it into the final cut. Sure. Yeah, like in this genre, like you don't have... I mean, like you, you don't think like we're missing like some kind of like brother on brother bonding about like, oh, and this is why it sucks our parents died. Uh, or we should finally talk about this thing. Or uh, It felt like there was like an angle there that like was missing that I think could have given them a chance to show, show the acting a little bit more. I think that... Maybe, but we heard Jody say he's thinking about leaving, and Mike overheard it, and then Mike goes to a psychic because he's worried about it. Mike, as you mentioned before, he's got a desperation to him and a sincerity. He's following Jody everywhere. Yeah. So I think you can see just by their actions 
what kind of characters they are without sure. necessarily getting a combo that addresses their emotions. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's impressive that, that they're able to show that through the acting, through, through like the sequences. And you get a touching moment between Reggie and Mike at the end. It just kind of catches you off guard so much that maybe you're not really thinking about the, the connection yeah, there. That's true. That's true. There's kind of like a heart to heart there happening at the end, which, yeah, it was very unexpected. But Next to a cozy fire in the hearth. I know. And that, that was also funny because, like, he starts playing guitar with, like, the score still going on in the background. Uh, did that throw you off at all? <laughs> no, I didn't really think about that. Oh, I've never seen that where, like, uh, you have someone on screen, like, playing music, but the score is going on, and so you have, like, these two pieces kind of clashing together. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just so confused there. Um, did you think it was scary? Oh, you know, I think there were some sequences that I, I felt like were pretty suspenseful and scary, and uh, I thought the tall man looked pretty ominous. Uh, the ball, like, flying through this uh, air was really cool. The visual of, like, the other planet and, and the creatures walking around, I thought was pretty sweet so uh yeah i I thought it had some good like uh theatrical scary uh, moments in it what about you i agree you know that scene from the other planet kind of reminded me of that fulci movie we watched the beyond do you remember that like the painting yeah right similar vibes and even the score kind of reminded me of some of those fulci scores interesting yeah yeah totally just a little more like drum and bass heavy than a typical horror movie score Mm -hmm. yeah yeah but I agree, there's some creepy imagery. We didn't mention this, but there's a scene where Mike has a nightmare that the tall man's at the head of his bed and his bed's in the graveyard and two ghouls pop up on either side of the bed and grab him. Oh, yeah, that was really cool. There were a couple of moments like that peppered into the movie and at the end when the tall man's chasing Mike and he shows up in his doorway. The tall man's kind of creepy and he's shot well. He He's shot... Yeah and scored well that makes him extra creepy yeah yeah exactly yeah they could have easily botched that but i i think he looks really cool it's a great face to this movie yeah um another scene i thought that was kind of stand out uh is when he's in the car with two women who are, i don't really understand who they were but they get like attacked by a mob of the creatures and there's just like a lot of like thrashing happening in the car um i, th- I thought that was also a cool shot yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I skipped over that in the plot. I think that was his Mike's aunt that Jody was planning on eventually leaving him with. And oh, okay. I don't know if it was her daughter or what. Yeah. Did you feel like this movie kind of looped a lot? Like you had a lot of, it, like when you get to the plot, a, a lot of it is just Jody going out and like trying to keep Mike at home and then Mike like kind of going out after him. Like I think that happens like three times. I didn't notice it until just now when I was reading through the plot, and I was like, they're just going back and forth between the (laughs) funeral home and their house. Yeah. Michael. What do they expect to happen differently? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, and they have no... They often don't have a really clear stated intention. They're just going there to see what's up. I don't know. Yeah, but that keeps like happening repeatedly. Like, uh, I think uh, Jody tries to keep Mike at home. Jody goes. Mike like breaks out, comes after him, saves Jody. They come back. Then Jody goes again, <laughs> and on repeat. Even that like last uh, when they're trying to trap the tall man, I didn't realize they were both working together at that part. That was that was like a plan they'd devised. That was a plan that they'd hatched. Yeah. When 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 did they come up with that plan? It was a moment of dialogue shortly before that scene happened. Wow. Oh, okay. Okay. I missed that. Um, 
Whoa, what was I just going to say? I totally lost it. That kind of is a dream logic thing, repeatedly yeah. doing an action and having it proved to be futile, and then the dream just kind of starts over. It reminds right. me of one of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. It's either four or five that has this really cool loop scene where they just keep finding themselves at the beginning of their sequence over and over again. Oh, It's okay. not as deliberate as that, but it has a similar yeah. vibe. Yeah, a lot of this movie, like when you look at it through like j- trying to be like a dream, it makes a lot of sense. Like the limited dialogue, that sounds like a dream. The repeated thing of going back and forth between two places repeatedly, that's kind of dreamlike. And Three Andrew, separate is... cars crash in like a very similar <laughs> yeah. stretch of roads, similar circumstances. Totally. Yeah, that was very repetitive too. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, they're just kind of driving back and forth between their house and the funeral home. Good point. Yeah. Yep. Breaking in and getting back out. It's wild. (laughs) Pretty much. That's funny. Anything else before I give you a scale and we rate the movie? Um, No, I think think, uh, we called out everything that that I had. Okay. Well, the scale is zero to five floating metal spheres. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, Yeah, I I would give it three and a half uh, floating metal spheres. Uh, I thought it was... Very imaginative, unpredictable, very unique, as we as we mentioned. Great atmosphere. Uh, I, I, my only uh, dislikes were like the dialogue and, and the acting, which I thought were kind of underdeveloped. But really, really fun watch. How about you? Uh, I'm I'm in the similar range. I give it four out of five floating metal spheres. I I don't necessarily have your complaints, but I think that there's some truth to them, and they're there, and they're probably part of the reason I didn't give this one out of five. Um, Honestly, maybe the looping element, I didn't quite articulate that in my own thoughts prior to this recording, but that might be part of it. It's just kind of aimless in a way. Yeah. (laughs) But it has some great visuals. Yeah. And the score, just to mention that again, just awesome. One of my favorite parts of the movie, perhaps one of my favorite horror scores of the movies we've reviewed so far. Right. Yeah. Um, And it's just got, yeah. It's so, so striking visually, and it's so cool that Don Coscarelli wrote, directed, shot, and edited this and had it turn out as well as it did. I know. That's incredible. On, like, such a small budget. Yeah. It's incredible. So that's really cool. I'd be really excited to see the rest of these. I don't know if Phantasm 2 is a big enough deal to cover in sequel September, but maybe on a Patreon episode that month or something. Yeah. I'd be into it. We should do it soon. Cool. Anything good. else before we close out the episode? No, good pick. Actually, one question for you uh, when it comes to those slaves that uh, this dude was making. Um, so it made sense that he's sending them back to the other planet, but what were all those ones around the graveyard and in the woods doing? Hmm. I guess just being security. Oh, got it. Yeah. Okay. Serving some purpose know. here on Earth. I don't know. Just grasping at straws trying to understand anything about this movie. (laughs) It is, it is. All right. Yeah, that's all I got. That was a good pick. Cool. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, Well, that has been our discussion on Phantasm, everybody. If you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or I guess on Spotify now. They have ratings now, too. Um, If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on the internet at horrormovieclub.com. There's a contact form there. There's also a social links drop down that will take you to Twitter or Facebook where we announce what we're going to cover next week. 
There's another link that you'd do well to click on for our Discord server. We've got a wonderful community of folks, movie fans, and listeners. There's always great conversation happening every day about horror movies on there. Some great folks. It's a wonderful community. Uh, if you want to support the show and get some bonus content, you can go to horrormovieclub.com and click on the big orange Patreon button. Uh, for a dollar a month, you can support the show for as long as you'd like to and listen to some of those bonus episodes. Uh, let's see. Our logo art is done by Amy May Pop Art. Go to Etsy.com and search for Amy May Pop Art, or you can just search for Horror Movie Club Coaster Set, and that'll bring up a coaster set she made for our show with our logo and some cool other horror art on it. Let's see. I think that's about it. So um, until next time... If you attend the funeral of a loved one and notice that The Undertaker is unreasonably strong, just assume he works out and uh, be on with your business instead of repeatedly <laughs> trespassing on his property. Yeah. <laughs> Best to mind your own business. Oh, he's super strong? I should trespass on his property at night. Yeah. Probably not someone you want to mess with. Maybe The Undertaker was based on him. Oh, what? The, the character? The wrestling guy? Oh. Wrestling. Right. Her wrestling.